In a world. Mate, hold up. We said we're done with the serious intros. Who said? Well, we did. I don't remember that. Well, I said it, and you're me, so, you know. Well, I don't care. In a world. Uh, hey, I told you. We're keeping it light. You do it on your own, then. Well, technically, I already am, so. Anyway, fuck yeah. Pure wild flight. Get it down, ya. How good? Visit nzaerosports.com. I get to do the next one. Well, obviously, you moron. We both do. Of course, I absolutely love the NZ Aerosports business model. I mean, come on. One glance at an Icarus fuck yeah sticker and you know it lines up perfectly with the fucking pilot mentality. But outside their wonderful use of colorful language and a great company vibe, there's a long list of reasons to say NZ Aerosports fuck yeah. NZ Aerosports blows me away right out of the gate as a canopy manufacturer with a bold offer. They give you 10 jumps on your brand new nylon to decide if you want to keep it, swap it out, or even return it for a refund. I mean, seriously, how incredible is that? That's like getting halfway through a prom and deciding you prefer the slightly racier date that goes down faster. Seriously, they do that. If you're not madly in love with your new canopy after 10 jumps, They'll let you swap it out for another size or model or even get your money back. And the range of canopies they've got? Man, they've got a style canopy to fit every jumper and every situation with models you know and trust. Like the Sapphire 3, the perfect choice for the beginner or intermediate canopy pilot. The Crossfire 3, when you're ready to kick it up that elliptical notch. The JFX 2, if you're looking to up your new swoop game. The Leia, as the workhorse and dirt water dirt beast. Or the Petra. The Petra cranks out crazy power and is nothing short of a record breaker. But hey, it's not always about speed either. Take the Kraken. Built as a low pack volume canopy specifically with wingsuiting in mind, she gives you all the performance you're looking for with the reliability you need that'll have you itching for that next formation, rodeo, or puffy cloud. So the equipment is top of the line kick-ass stuff as you already know, but how about the team? Well, the customer service gang is there to sort you out whenever you need them. Maddie and Beto are always there to help with Jen holding the reins. They're available for you at sales at nzaerosports.com and they've got a kick-ass live chat tool on the website if you're wanting to hit someone up right away. These are the crew you're going to want to talk to to get those custom orders in. With the stock nylon, once you know what you want, they'll have that shit on a FedEx truck as soon as the credit card machine says approved and get you in the air in no time. For your custom orders, you'll be able to get a time frame for building and shipping when you design it, so get to it. And demos. They've got demos in the U.S. available from their partner Rock Sky Market. The whole U.S. demo fleet is there with Sapphire 3, Crossfire 3, Kraken, JFX2, and Leia canopies in a range of sizes. They also offer student and tandem demos in the U.S. Bottom line, every step of the way, NZ Aerosports is there to get you what you need, and I personally couldn't be happier to be teamed up with them here on Lunatic Fringe. And now, time to get started with Lunatic Fringe Into the Void, brought to you proudly by NZ Aerosports. Fuck yeah! Coming straight from the cockpit, it's another episode of Lunatic Fringe with the fucking pilot.
Ready, set, go. Back in the can for another edition of Lunatic Fringe Into the Void and another smile on the opposite side of the screen that nobody listening can see, but I get to see it. <laughs> Tell me, who the fuck are you and what do you do? I'm Caitlin Escott, uh, better known in the skydive community as Compton, and uh, I'm a wingsuit pilot and coach. Uh, wingsuit pilot and coach. Very cool. You know, I'll tell you what, of all the things that I've managed to do in skydiving, flying a wingsuit is still not one of them after t- almost 28 years in the sport. <laughs> it's, uh, I, I haven't that, haven't gotten around to it yet, but one of these days. Yeah, I mean, the straight jackets, uh, it's not for everyone, but fair enough. Fun. Well, I'm a pilot, so you would think that as soon as wingsuits <laughs> came around, I'd want to go fly that little thing, but I just it just hasn't happened yet. Yeah. So now, where did uh, where did Compton come from? Oh man, you want the condensed version or the uh, the uh, dramatized version? <laughs> no, nah, I want the drama. <laughs> Give me the drama. <laughs> yeah, that uh, that nickname's been around for for quite a while. Um, I was eighteen at the time. Uh, it was just before or, or around the time I'd, I'd started skydiving, actually, and I was driving late at night and my dad uh before i'd left for this trip he kind of said a, his, his classic dad thing of you got your knife with you I said yeah dad i got my knife because you know just in case you hit something and it doesn't die <laughs> so off i off i go on this drive and uh yeah deer came out of nowhere and didn't quite miss it i clipped its back legs broke them quite badly and uh i thought god damn this is the time my dad has forewarned me of my my whole life it's time to do the thing now so um you know with that in mind i any other options of how to deal with this situation kind of fell by the wayside and sure i took my knife out which was not a really great hunting knife it was my leatherman and I spent the better part of a few hours uh, sawing open the uh, jugular of this poor deer. <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> oh, yeah. There's nothing graceful about it whatsoever. And um, anyways, right. once people started to find out about that, jokes were made about uh, shanking and being from Compton. So it's stuck. There you go. Well, I, I tell you, I, I wasn't sure what direction that story was going to go because <laughs> – I'm from California. So if my dad said, take this knife, so anything you hit and don't kill, you can take care of. (laughs) We should probably, we should probably clarify you're from Canada. Yes. Yeah, that's right. I'm from pretty, uh, pretty deep in the woods. (laughs) Yeah. I I really didn't know where the fuck that conversation was about. (laughs) Nice. Yeah. There's a, there's a brief history. All right. All right. So now whereabouts in, uh, in Canada were you uh, from? I'm uh, from a super tiny town called Wells in the interior of British Columbia, which is on the west coast of Canada. Okay, so how does someone from uh, the interior of Canada, from a little place called Wells, decide that they want to go out and be a skydiver? Well, uh, it was just one of those things. I think for a lot of people, you know, skydiving, that's a awesome thing I want to go do one day. You know, like riding on a amusement park ride and Sure. just sort of slotted in with all that and so when I was 18 I started looking at what my options were found out I had to be 19 to go 
and there was two options you could go tandem which is three hundred dollars or you could do the first jump course which is 200 and uh you know 19 years old you don't have a lot of money and i thought well i guess i'm doing the first jump course it's a hundred <laughs> bucks cheaper nice <laughs> yeah so i uh yeah i did that first jump and man it was just the the best feeling i i ever had and wanted to do it again so I did a second jump my my first day and it was a bit of a bit of a slow progression at the start being from Canada and jumping at 182 drop zones but um seems like every year I jump more and more so mm. Well, I mean, the weather's a bit of a factor that direction too. I mean, the Pacific Northwest in general, you're you're kind of fighting the weather. But uh, um, when you say you did your first jump and, and first jump course, did you do static line or AFF? Um, yeah, so it's instructor assisted deployment. So I guess kind of similar to static line. Um, but yeah, you're you're jumping from thirty five hundred feet, and your parachute is is deployed. Um, right away and so you work up to the free fall so we call it the the gradual free fall program nice now when you when you got into the first jump course were you sitting there as they're starting to explain how to control the canopy and all this thinking shit what have i gotten myself into this is pretty involved or were you like hell yes here we go oh no i was so stoked nice yeah what yeah, did the what did the family sure. think of uh, of you deciding you wanted to go jump out of an airplane you know, my family has been really supportive right from the very start. Nice. Yeah, everyone thinks it's a pretty cool thing to do, and and they're all stoked that that that's the the way I've decided to spend my life. Sure. Now, uh, you you go through the first few jumps, and you're off, obviously off to a slow start because it's a 182 drop zone and a, and a small place. And uh, how do you start to transition into getting more experience? I think a big catalyst for me actually was moving to Australia um, in 2017. I moved there and I actually got a job filming tandems for Skydive Australia mm. uh, up in Cairns and really started to jump then and get better skills. And then I did a wingsuit coach um, or wingsuit course rather uh, when I was in in Australia, I had done some wingsuiting before that point, but not with much direction or coaching. And and so the more I learned about wingsuiting there, the more I wanted to jump and the more I wanted to learn. And it's just kept going from there. Sure. And, and then in the last few years, um, you know, having some more cool opportunities and, and getting to do more coaching in the wingsuiting has really inspired me to jump as much as I can. Nice. Now, as you were getting started, had there been a plan before of the direction your life was going to take before skydiving or was skydiving just kind of what you, no pun intended, fell into? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I guess a, a bit of it was sort of accidental and I've never, um, like I've worked in the sport a little bit here and there, you know, as a packer, filming the tandems, but it's never been my main source of income. And I've worked, you know, a lot of construction jobs and then I got into rope access. And the more I started to jump and the more I wanted to jump, the more I realized that if I could have a job that 
allowed me to make the most amount of money in the least amount of time that that was going to be the best best way that I could continue jumping. Nice. Now rope access, what is that? Uh, I mean, it's uh, by itself, it's just a means of accessing places. And so that's, uh, it's, it's got to be paired up with some other skills. Um, I love that. I love that your response to that was a very polite way of going. That was a stupid fucking question. <laughs> well, I mean, yes and no. All right. So what do you access on these ropes and what is it you're doing? Um. I primarily work in the oil and gas industry doing pipe fitting, welding, electrical insulation projects. Uh, I also work in geotechnical film and television. Um, I've done a little bit of building maintenance. And when I was in Australia, I worked in iron ore mining. Holy crap. So you kind of run the gamut of a whole bunch of different careers. Yeah. So I'm, uh, I'm a level three rope access, which means that I'm a supervisor. My job is to, um, ensure the rigging is in compliance and be responsible um, for any rescues that need to take place um, in the duration of the job. Wow. Wow. Now, this mm-hmm. is obviously it took you to Australia. Whereabouts did it take you uh, on the West Coast? Were you up like on the Alaskan slope and stuff like that? Uh, in Canada, I work in northern Alberta. Okay. It's, I mean, it's uh, a bit of a barren wasteland, honestly. I- <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Well, unless, you're, unless you're going there for work, there's there's not much else happening. Well, but Australia kind of is that way too, just a different climate, right? Yeah, yeah. I did my fair share in uh, in Western Australia. Um, Working the mines know, just, out around Perth. Yeah, that's right. Uh, north of Perth, and uh, just absolutely sweating my ass off day in and day out. I have a, a another skydiver friend who was a tandem instructor or was a tandem instructor for many years in Perth, uh, but he was also a high end welder as well, and he was working in the mines. So he would fly out, do his job, go back, and then chuck drogues and have fun. So it seems to be uh, kind of a, a, a big mix. There's a lot of skydivers that do the mine thing in Australia. Yeah, yeah. There's there's quite a few base jumpers and skydivers that work in the rope access industry. And that's actually how I found out about it is that um, before I started base jumping, this, the the one sole base jumper that I knew, he gave me Dukes's book, uh. Confessions of an Idiot. And he said, you need to read this before you think about base jumping. And that was the first time I'd ever heard of rope access. And uh, he sort of closes the book saying that he's working in rope access and paying off his crazy credit card bills. <laughs> well, like, Dukes okay, is- so this is going to be something I'm going to have to do probably is pay off credit cards. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, Dukes is kind of the poster child for the non-standard life, right? I mean, he kind of has yeah. just gone his own direction the whole way, which is kind of awesome. Mm-hmm. So especially to get into base jumping. I mean, how did you know that was something you'd want to do? Cause that's, that's next level. As soon as you've decided you want to go from just making the occasional skydive, I would imagine rope access gives you a unique relationship with heights in that kind of reference. But what was the, what was the real draw to, to base jumping? Actually it was, um, so the same person I had mentioned before that gave me the book, he, had come into the drop zone one day he just recently come back from a trip in Baffin Island Mm. and he put up some of his footage on the tv 
at the DZ. And it was the first time that I'd ever even seen base jumping. Um, I was never someone that spent hours on YouTube or I didn't really know that it was a thing that existed. <laughs> and so all of a sudden I was just seeing this incredible footage of flying wingsuits around the frozen fjords and just this intense landscape and this beautiful expression of flying and I didn't immediately think that's that's what I'm going to do I it seemed so out of reach for me but I was amazed by it sure and so I I wanted to know more and I started uh, talking to this guy about base jumping and and gradually learning a bit more about it and then he started to teach me how to pack which I picked up really quick and I was I was already working as a, a packer at the drop zone I had like fuck all jumps right. I think I got my packing endorsement before I even got my, my <laughs> solo license honestly <laughs> <laughs> and uh and yeah so then I was packing base canopies and practicing that for a while and then it was sort of a year or two after that, that that I actually did my first base jump and it's been that way for me sort of all the way along um not necessarily having these these big definitive goals of that's where I want to go and that's where I want what I want to do it was more I, I was amazed by these things and opportunities were presenting themselves to me organically and I and I took them as they sure. came to me. Well, it sounds like uh, if you've taken that kind of time between the discovery of something like base jumping and and then two years before you actually make your first base jump, you'd clearly put a fair amount of thought into it. Um, what about training? Did you have uh, an instructor specifically? I mean, it sounds to me like you're you're pretty methodical about knowing what the hell you're doing before you do it. Yeah, I actually... Um, I learned what is now probably referred to as the old school way. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I was, I was mentored by the community in BC. Like it was a very close knit group. There's, you know, only five or six people in the whole province that were base jumping and, and it was a really tight crew and they were really excited to have uh, new people be interested and, and want to join in on that. And so I was mentored. I never took a, a base jumping course. Still have well, to this day. I mean, base jumping courses really kind of haven't become a thing until what, the last maybe six, eight years? Yeah. I mean, yeah. and uh, it, I'm coming up on my 10 year anniversary of base jumping. Nice, nice. I mean, I yeah. remember when, when the only base jumps that I knew of were off the New River Gorge Bridge. And this would be, this will date me, but this was back in like 96, I think, is when I went to film uh, Bridge Day and people were jumping sport rigs uh, packed slider down. Um, yeah. in, in fact, even one old guy, this kind of heavy set old guy that jumped a spring loaded pilot shoot and it was the greatest oh, thing in the world. Oh yeah. A ripcord spring loaded pilot shoot and he'd jump off, he'd pull his ripcord and then you could see him just wiggle until that pilot shoot would clear and it would open and he would jump three or four times in a day. So that's what I knew yeah. as base jumping. And there was no lesson for that. You know, I mean, you just found somebody that had something you could jump and then you went and jumped. 
Um, so it's really cool to see, you know, proper courses being given because it's fucking dangerous. <laughs> I mean, yeah. And there's, you know, there's a lot of really great instructors out there, really knowledgeable people. And um, I, I do think it's really cool thing for the sport to have that high level education. Oh, yeah. Well, and, and for it to go from completely um, no instruction whatsoever and band it all the way to now tandem base jumping. I mean, in the course of 10 <laughs> years, holy shit. You know, I mean, it's a dramatic step forward in that part of the sport. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, I maybe it's because I know so many skydivers that are active base jumpers, but I, I take great pride in the, the base jumping community, even though I'm not a part of it, only because I know the people that are doing it. Uh, as a step too far for me, no thanks. <laughs> I'll, I'll leave that to you guys, but I very much appreciate the, I mean, I don't know how else to put it, the artistry uh, behind what base jumping is becoming. It really is spectacular. Yeah. Yeah. There's some pretty, pretty cool things happening these days. Oh, it's amazing. Now um, you started base jumping. How long did it take for you to transition into putting a pair of wings on? Um, so I actually did my first base jump and my first wingsuit jump within a month of each other. Wow. Um, and then I spent quite a few years wingsuiting, uh, before I, I combined the two. Hmm. Um, I'll, I will have been wingsuit base jumping for four years. Wow. Um, yeah, pretty pretty quick here. No, so I was yeah, I was base jumping for six years before I I did my first wingsuit base jump, which is actually quite a long time. Yeah, it's nice to hear though because I, I mean I had uh, the guys from Squirrel on, and that was one of the big things that they said is you should know how to fly the shit out of a wingsuit before you ever get anywhere near base jumping with something like that because it's a whole new, very intense addition to the sport of base jumping yeah it it totally is and i mean the, the interesting thing about it is it it's not actually that hard to do and just survive right but it's a whole different ball game to do it well and sure. be very skilled at it and and I really think it's so important to yeah be able to fly the living fuck out of your wingsuit before you <laughs> huck it off a cliff. Absolutely. Now, have you had specific goals in mind for your uh, base jumping? I mean, nowadays, they've got so much going on and teams that are flying and doing all these spectacular things. Have you ever aimed yourself in that direction or has it always just been for personal achievement? Yeah, I would say mostly for personal achievement um it's it's my favorite way to express myself um in the last few years i have been doing competitive uh wingsuiting in the skydive environment mm -hmm. um, but even that has been more more a tool for me to improve my skills so that i can bring them into the mountains Nice. Well, yeah. and more and more of the wingsuit base jumpers that I've talked to use skydiving simply as a way to tighten things up to be able to take to the mountains. Um, 
the uh, Matt and Nick um, Scalabrino and Matt Munting being the prime examples because I've had them on a number of times. And every time I had them on, that was the big thing is they would take uh, all the lessons that they learned flying their wingsuits in a skydiving uh, environment and take them to the mountain and just go next level. And some of the stuff that they were doing was just mind blowing. Yeah, it's, it's so impressive. And the thing about doing that is it's, it's a, it's this sort of never ending loop, you know, you get to do these cool things in the mountains, which inspires you then to do more skydiving to improve your skills even more. So you can then go back again to the base jumping environment and it's just, they feed into each other. Sure. Now, looking back from, from your perspective now, did you ever envision when you got started that it would lead to what you've been able to achieve over the last few years? Oh man, I've thought, I've thought about this a lot actually. And I think if, if I could give a little sneak preview of what I've been doing the last few years to my 19 year old self, I'd be just over the moon, like so, so, so stoked. And I don't think I could have imagined all the stuff that I've been able to do and the people that I've met. You know, I, I had this really cool moment at Heli Bogey in 2017. I was standing there looking over at the exit and there was Dukes and Lori Butts and Robert Petchnik and and Julie Wentz. And these are all names that I'd heard so much when I was just a little baby base jumper. And here I was standing on top of Chirag with all of them. Like I, I could have never imagined that. And there's so many moments since then where I kind of take a step back and I'm like, how fucking cool is this, that this is my life? It, it's an, it's the most incredible community, both skydiving and base jumping. And, and for somebody like me that doesn't base jump, the blending of the two sports and these incredible personalities and being able to, you know, uh, live through someone else's exploits um, is incredible, but I can't even imagine what it's got to be like in the base jumping world. I know what it's like to find myself on board a plane with, for lack of a better word, my heroes. And it's the same thing. Yeah. It really is. And what an amazing sport and an amazing community that you can find yourself doing, not only making a jump with these people, but calling them friends. It's just, Mm -hmm. it's fucking, it's cool as hell. I don't know how else to put it. It's just cool as hell. And, And I don't think there's many other sports like that. You know, if you're, if your thing's basketball, like the chances of you getting to shoot some hoops with Michael Jordan is... (laughs) Absolutely. None. Absolutely. I mean, it just because you're a, a decent quarterback in your neighborhood football league doesn't mean you're going to find yourself, you know, throwing passes with fucking Joe Namath or some other, you know, hero yeah. from the sports not going to happen. Skydiving is completely the opposite, though. You will if you're in it long enough, skydiving and base jumping, you will find yourself sharing airspace with your heroes, which is just you can't yeah, put it into so words. Cool. Yeah, absolutely. Now, when I originally approached you to be on the podcast, it was specifically because of stuff that you've been posting lately. And I want to talk about, uh, you've been going through some, definitely some difficult times, but you've been sharing them very, very boldly, uh, with people, which I think is fantastic. 
Uh, I think it's important that um, the type of lessons that you can convey to people get out there. So I'd like you to talk about about what you've been going through for the last, well, however long it's been going on. Yeah, so just shy of two months ago on January 16th, I was in a speed flying accident. I fucked up my landing and I hit in a seated position which um, shattered my L1, uh, significantly fractured my T12, L2, and also left me with a, it's called a conus and cauda equina injury. Mm. So I had a pretty serious operation to decompress my spine and fuse it. So I have six vertebrae that are fused spanning from t10 to l3 that's that's a significant chunk of uh of spine to have fused yep yeah yeah i mean pretty good scar yes yes i i saw the post of the scar as well i i unfortunately have a few of my own and a couple of fused vertebrae as well but um it's it's a difficult thing to wrap your head around right i mean to go from going 100% to having to sit there, uh, having someone else help you get up and help you get around. And it's a, uh, it's a very difficult thing to wrap your head around, but it seems like it's something, it's a challenge that you're taking on with a lot of strength, which is what I like to see. I mean, what's it been like, especially from realizing that it was a significant injury to being told what you have uh, to deal with? Yeah, I mean, the uh, roller coaster of emotions is not an amusement park ride I would <laughs> recommend to anyone. Mm. Um, yeah, I mean, I was conscious through the whole thing. So it was pretty scary sitting there, not being able to feel either of my legs. I couldn't feel them or move them. And. Thankfully, um, you know, I, I do have the use of both of my legs. I mm. had an incredible surgeon and there was an insane amount of luck involved in that as well. Mm. Um, because most people with my injury would have been paralyzed. Mm. What, had... what do you think contributes to the fact that, that uh, you were lucky enough to avoid that? Honestly, I have no idea. Um, the people that were with me in the landing area did the right thing and didn't move me from the seated position I was in, mm. even though I was begging them to lay me down. Um, so that probably helped them not moving me prematurely um, and having a really great surgeon. But man, looking at the MRI, it's... It is insane that mm. I have the use of my legs. It really is. My it's, my spinal cord was almost completely occluded by bone fragments. Wow. It's it's uh first off it's amazing how quickly you become accustomed to um what were previously unknown medical terms, right? In in dealing oh, yeah. with your own body, you have no idea about any of this shit. Next thing you know, you're rattling off these terms uh, like a, a surgeon yourself because it's 
so i mean it's you it's everything that's going on and and how quickly you learn just how lucky and or unlucky you have been yeah it's an interesting dichotomy i guess i i on one hand i am very fucking lucky um there's so many ways that that could have been worse so many other bones I could have broken mm. and didn't. But then on the other hand, like, I mean, how lucky is it to break your spine? Sure. Um, how, I mean, how is that to try and wrestle with on a daily basis? I know personally, pre and post injury, I've gone through that same thing to some degree. But I mean, you're talking about, you know, potentially life threatening injuries, being on the backside of it, it's difficult to consider yourself lucky in any respect, right? So how do you balance that? Yeah, it's, I've, I've definitely gone through some days feeling not lucky at all, feeling so shit about all of a sudden losing the use of my body as I knew it. Mm. And, you know, just all of a sudden having this body that I don't, recognize and sure. don't like sure and it's not doing all the things that i want it to do but then you know i i i do think about some of the ways that it could have been worse if i had have also broken a leg i wouldn't be walking right now i'd mm. still be laying in bed probably sure if i if if i actually did sever my spinal cord i've would be in a totally different world. Sure. And you, and you, you know they 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 say you know comparison is the the thief of joy, which I think there's some truth to because sometimes I I get caught comparing myself to what I was before, and I just think, sure. oh my god, my my body was so perfect. It did all of these amazing things. It was so strong and agile, flexible. And now it's not any mm. of those things, you know, but then when I compare myself to where I was a week out of surgery, I couldn't move my left leg. I, all I could do was wiggle the toes on my left leg mm. for almost two weeks after surgery. So when I compare to that chunk of time, sure, not being able to sit up, not being able to stand or walk. I feel like really stoked that I'm, I am getting better mm. and, and I do feel lucky. So it is, it is kind of this constant battle in my head. Sure. sure. Well, now you seem like a pretty goal oriented person. Uh, does that make the challenges that you've already gone through and the challenges to come a little easier to deal with when you've got goals to aim for? I think so. Yeah. I mean, for me, like flying is my life. Sure. My my whole adult life has been geared towards being able to do that as much as I can in whatever way I can. Mm. And that hasn't changed. Now it's just a little bit harder. It just means I have to work more. I have to be more focused. I have to work harder than I ever have. Mm. And some of that work requires 
not doing anything, which is kind of the hardest part for like sure. actually letting my body rest, having some patience for the healing process. So I'm learning all kinds of other lessons that way. For sure. Well, and I mean, there's, it's, I would think that the hardest battle is the mental battle because it's gotta be, it's gotta be a bit of a bite to realize that the accident happened under what we would consider the, the safe part, right? You're just coming into land. It's not flying down some gully in a wingsuit. It's not going balls to the wall or off some crazy exit. It's just landing an open, perfectly good flying canopy. Um, so part of that mental battle has got to be, are you kidding? This is this is when it happened? Yeah, I've had a lot of time to think about that. I bet. And that's, that's kind of a, I, I guess I just have to get over it, but I'm pretty disappointed in myself because I could have had a safe landing mm. and I chose to do things that made that not possible. Sure. I, I did a canopy maneuver that I wasn't practiced in. Mm. I wasn't current on that wing. I wasn't current speed flying. The conditions weren't good. And I made a bad call. Mm. Well, and I and mean, it that's so avoidable. It was so avoidable. That's the, that's the thing, right? Is it never seems to be just one thing. It's, it's a, a chain of events that leads to something like that. And it sounds like it's yeah. exactly the same thing with you, uh, not being current, uh, being in bad conditions and doing something new all at once. There's that three strike rule that they talk about. Yeah. It's... And <laughs> you know, this is something that I heard early on in my jumping was this three strike rule sure. or the or writing yourself an accident report. Yeah. You know, how stupid do you sound? <laughs> yeah, sure. all the factors. I mean, it, Is it it's, obvious? it's it, always in hindsight. Always, almost always in hindsight, accidents are very easy to break down. You can see the different areas where it started to go south a little bit. But it doesn't mm -hmm. make it any easier to deal with after the fact. I mean, you still have to deal with what's going on. But I mean... You, you say you're you're disappointed in yourself, but we all fuck up. It's just that most of us get a little bit luckier. And this time, unfortunately, luck wasn't on your side, which sucks. Yeah. Yeah. And I've had, you know, I've, I've done, I've done lowish <laughs> turns and gotten away with it. My fair sure. share. And you get that little split second where you're like, oh, fuck. And then you stab it out with your toggles and everything's fine but there wasn't enough time for that yeah. this time yeah yeah now what uh, uh what do the doctors say as far as uh long-term prognosis and what comes next for you um they've given me kind of the 12 months thing a few times um Everyone seems to think that um, in terms of my musculoskeletal recovery, that I should be able to get back to almost normal function. Mm. Um, but then the, the, the things that were sort of most affected by the fracture was the nerves that go to my bladder and bowel. Mm. 
And so there is, I guess, some hope that within two years, um, some of those nerves might work a little better. I might have more control and sensation, but it's very possible that things will stay as they are now. Sure. Well, I read one of the posts that you put up and, and uh, I was very struck by the the candor and the honesty of the post because you were pissed and you, there was no sugarcoating it. You were fucking mad about that specific diagnosis. And, and yeah. uh, um, I was really struck by um, how upfront you were about that. Um, and I think it's really something that, that people make, need to take into consideration. You know, I mean, it's um, you're going through some really difficult times and being very strong about it, which is absolutely incredible. And you're also getting the word out there to other people that these kind of things do happen, you know, and, and you need to be aware. Yeah. And previous to my injury, I had no idea, mm. no idea that that would be something that was affected mm. by an injury for sure. But it's the thing that's going to affect me the most going forward. Sure. And I mean, anyone that's known me for any amount of time knows that I'm not particularly shy person. So it's not, it's not that difficult for me to talk about these things. And I do think that it's worth making people aware of and, and maybe hopefully it'll inspire people to, to not, not do what I did. Sure. Well, you know, just I mean, to... ac- accidents happen, you know, but like if it maybe makes someone think that twice about showing off on landing. Yeah, for sure. I mean, we've all had it, all skydivers have, and, and uh, uh, the, those landings that you, you didn't so much pull off as you just fucking got away with it. Um, mm. and I had more than I, my fair share that I got away with, but you're right. The injuries that most people assume are going to happen, it's going to be a broken arm. It's going to be a broken leg. It might be a broken back, but you don't think in depth about what that entails. Um, and I think it's important for people to realize what we're putting on the line and that the safety aspect of what we do and that the training that needs to go into it to keep us safe is of paramount importance go out and be a badass and do all this hardcore shit but do it in the most incredibly safe way that you can um in every aspect of it and that the jump isn't over until you're standing on the ground with the parachute laying beside you on the ground yeah it's a big deal definitely yeah it is and uh and man nerve injuries are something else yep. like there's just so many intricacies and nuances and you don't think about any of them no. until it's a problem for you. Well, and it's, it's, it's very tough to to put yourself in someone's shoes if you haven't dealt with anything along those lines. Um, and it's a, I'm sure it's a battle daily of, as you've already said, of being happy one moment that you're in the position that you're in and pissed off that you're in the position that you're in, because uh, it could mm-hmm. be so much worse, but it could be so much better. Yeah. You know, well, I, I mean, I'll tell you, I, I 
really want to follow your progress. I hope that uh, um, you continue to progress as fast as you have, because I know that potentially you're already leaps and bounds above where you could have been. Um, what is your what is your time frame for jumping? Because I know that's what's on your mind is you want to get back <laughs> in the air. Yeah. Um, oh, man. I mean, all things considered, I feel pretty good right now. And I need to, I still need to mostly rest until I reach the three month mark. Um, but after that point, getting to do as much physio as I can and, and really, really focus on my training and recovery. I feel right now that it's possible that I could think about jumping towards the, the fall. Nice. Now, yeah. I, I know you said you've got a very supportive family, but how do they feel uh, or have you even broached the subject of jumping again with them and how do they feel about it? <laughs> I feel that it's uh, it's it's not actually something that needs to really be spoken about. They know sure. that that's, that's my biggest motivation. That's my main goal and that will always be my main goal. There is sure. There is nothing in the world that could make me want to stop doing sure. what I do. Sure. It's funny, right? I mean, you talk to anybody that's not involved in a sport like ours and and you describe the situation that you're going through and they can't wrap their head around the fact that you would want to go back and do that again. And for jumpers, we're literally recovering from injury, trying to figure out just how quickly we can get back in the air. Yeah, it's like the sole purpose of getting better is just for that. I, I can't tell if that's something that's really right with us or really fucking wrong with us. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, because I've done the same thing. I mean, I, I, I made a skydive less than a month after I broke my leg on a skydive. And, and the doctors had told me three months minimum. And here I am in free fall thinking, I better fucking nail this landing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> God damn it. You know, I mean, you just, you can't help it. It's a, it's a, um, an almost indescribable passion and drive to do something like that. Yeah, absolutely. So tell everybody how they follow your story and how they follow your adventures and how they learn some lessons directly from you and how they uh, uh, get to celebrate with you when you're back in the air. What social media, how do they reach you? Uh, yeah, Caitlin Escott on Facebook and on Instagram, Compton underscore K E. Um, uh, yeah, I'm oversharing all the time on there. So <laughs> awesome! I love the Compton nickname and especially the story behind it. It's <laughs> fucking great. I tell you, Caitlin, I cannot thank you enough for for taking the time to sit down with me. I know uh, also for all your all the listeners, you're going to be going on uh, egg, the Exit Point podcast as well. And I want to highlight the fact that you're going to be talking to them because it's much more base jumping specific and they can talk to you in detail about a sport that I have only cursory knowledge of. Uh, so mm -hmm. I want to really, really highlight the fact that you're going to be on that as well. So everybody should go listen to you there. Uh, and you can kind of expand on everything that we've talked about. Yeah. Awesome. It was uh, really great talking to you, Dean. Yeah. You take care and you have an amazing day. 
And there you have it. Another episode of Lunatic Fringe Into the Void brought to you as always by, and say it with me, fuck yeah, NZ Aerosports. Head to nzaerosports.com. By Pussfoot. That's right. Head to Pussfoot.com, the extreme sports collective, and check out everything they've got to offer. By SummitParachuteSystems.com. Jarrett Martin and the family cranking out amazing pilot rigs, as well as incredible rigging courses. And now joining the Lunatic team, it's the one and only Tony Suits. You know them, you love them. Head to TonySuit.com. Check out all the amazing standards, as well as the new incredible signature line they've got going on. And as for us, the Lunatic Fringe is now on YouTube. That's right, you're going to have the chance to put faces to the audio by heading to YouTube.com and looking up the Lunatic Fringe Podcast. It's easy. Hit the like button, hit the subscribe button, check out all the amazing videos from the previous guests that we've had, as well as new and upcoming interviews on video. As always, I am the fucking pilot. Head to thefuckingpilot.net or theprincesspilot.com. Thanks for joining. We'll see you next time around. Well, holy shit, I actually managed to do it. After procrastinating for ages, I finally managed to produce an audiobook version of the Lunatic Fringe book. It's currently available on all Amazon sites, audible.com, and shortly on iTunes. And if you're the page-turning type, it's also, of course, still available in Kindle form, paperback, and uh, hardback on Amazon. 10 hours and 10 years worth of Blue Skies Magazine's articles, all available to you right fucking now, including a few author's notes and even an apology or two. Enjoy.